you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to the book of Philippians for the last time, but not the last time in your lives. I really hope that uh, you will occasionally read through Philippians in the upcoming months. This will be our last kind of official message there, although I really feel like I could just start again with the book. Um, there are um, so many challenges to us, and as I read through it again myself, which I find is refreshing, but it's also uh, surprising at how much of that I can come through again. It's like, now I know I explained this. What did I say? But even more, how much of it I still want to apply. And so please, uh, in the upcoming months, uh, read through Philippians again to cement it and make it more of who you are. Last night, the uh, uh, elders and pastors had a sweet time with uh, Pastor John, and we got to go to Korean barbecue together. Um, our uh, elder Huey did a tremendous job uh, cooking for us for two hours straight. There, there was a brief pause in there, but I don't think it lasted more than five or ten minutes there. After two hours, and I don't know if you've ever been to a Korean barbecue, all you can eat, it says all you can eat, but they stop you at two hours, which is probably an act of grace. Uh, after two hours of eating <laughs> as much as you can, they bring you a little cup of ice cream, right? A, and and I, I don't know if that's something that's typical of uh, Korean barbecues or just at Mr. Barbecue they do this, but I'm glad that they do. I didn't know that I would be, but I was glad that they did. They know you're full, but they want to leave you with just a sweet taste in your mouth as you leave. Now, from my personal experience, I can tell you, no matter how much do you like the pickled daikon, don't eat them after the ice cream. It's not a good idea. The Apostle Paul does something similar as he ends his letter to the church of, of Philippians. It's a gentle letter to a healthy church. And in it, Paul has given them a full meal. The letter is overflowing with themes of who Christ is, themes of rejoicing, themes of them living worthy, of them being unified, of their humility. I think last week we saw some of that fullness when these last two beautiful verses of how God supplies all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus and to him be the glory. And in a sense, we could have ended there. But Paul doesn't end there. He adds just a little bit more so that that letter ends with a sweet taste. These words may be the last that they ever hear from their beloved Apostle Paul. Neither them nor Paul knows exactly what's going to happen when he goes before Nero. Will he be executed? Paul doesn't think so. He's hopeful he'll get to see them again. But he doesn't know. These last words may be his last words to them. These are appropriate words to remember Paul by. They're encouraging words. They are words that are full of hope. And this ending is tactfully chosen by the Apostle Paul to encourage them without distracting them from the full meal that they just had. And that's what these words do. They encourage without taking away a... And sometimes Paul in his letters, and if you read uh, Romans with us, if you were in care group this past year, you came to Romans 16, and you're like, wow, there's a lot here. Paul doesn't do that with this letter. I'm going to read again from Philippians 4, 10, and we'll read up to 23. We'll just start at verse 10 to give a little context. But I, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, be, concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know, also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. 
For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And now let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for preserving your word. Scripture is clear uh, that all of it is breathed out by you. Uh, even this last greeting here, even this last uh, kind of wish prayer that Paul has for Jesus' grace being to them. We thank you for preserving it for us, and we come this morning uh, to be taught by you, by what your word says. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be encouraged, would be exhorted, and where necessary would be admonished. We pray, Father, that you'd be working uh, through your spirit, a transformation of us into the image of your son, that we would become more like him today. Father, we want to live uh, worthy of the gospel. We want to live as citizens of heaven in this world uh, now. That's why Paul wrote the book of, of Philippians, that they would live worthy of the gospel. And we want to be doing that too. And I pray, Father, as we uh, finish this book, that you would use uh, these last verses in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. From Paul's conclusion in Philippians 4, verses 21 to 23, we'll see three reasons to be encouraged while we are in this world. Three reasons to be encouraged while in this world. We know that life for God's people in this world can be hard. You know it from your everyday experience. I was just talking to a brother, going through even just some of the hardships that are ongoing in our life, like our car's transmission going out. We face those everyday hardships. But we also face other spiritual struggles. Really, those, are, those can all be spiritual struggles. The Philippians were facing, and we know this from the letter, many challenges. They were worried about Paul's upcoming trial. They were tempted to grumble and, and dispute. There was friction that was challenging their relationships. They were in need of pastoral guidance. They were hopeful that Timothy would be freed up by Epaphroditus coming so that they would have Timothy's help even if Paul couldn't come and help them. They were facing opposition from the surrounding culture for the gospel. They were fighting the influence of false teachers. They were facing all of these kinds of struggles. They were facing poverty. We face many similar challenges. We need to be as encouraged as well in this world. So it leads to our first point. Be encouraged by God's victory over this world. Be encouraged by God's victory over this world. We're going to see two evidences of God's victory. The first one, and this is under your, your, your first point. I don't have a, uh, it, it, it written there, but you can write, write it in. The first evidence of God's victory is that God's people are not alone. God's people are not alone. We are not alone. I'm confident that Paul met this greeting to the Philippians to be encouraging to them. He wanted them to remember that God's plan for this world wasn't limited to Philippi. That they were not the last bastion of God's advancing kingdom on the planet. Sometimes we can forget that Cornerstone Bible Church is not alone. And perhaps it's easier than ever to feel the weight of the world. If you're on social media, the constant barrage of the world's agenda is oppressive. I feel it more and more, and I don't know if you feel it too. Constant news articles, just bad news after bad news, and much of it opposed to those who love Jesus Christ. Persecution for most of us in America may not be physical, but this age is obviously anti-Christ. We know it is obvious to us that we are strangers here, but we are not alone. 
As Paul writes this encouraging greeting, there's, there's three stages. It's kind of a, a cascading wa- waterfall. It goes from the greeting of one to the greeting of some to the greeting of many. Paul begins with his personal greeting in verse 21, the first part there. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Paul's command, perhaps to be carried out by the leaders, was to communicate his personal greeting to every saint in Philippi. The, the NIV has greet all the saints, which, which misses an important distinction here. Paul saying greet every saint, greet every one of them. It was an important emphasis for this church that was struggling with unity. Paul wanted each and every saint to be greeted. Imagine if the Malaysia team came back from Southeast Asia. And as we dispersed through the church, we worked hard to shake each one of your hands and to say, Joshua and Julie greet you. They send their affections for you. They said that they appreciate you, even the ones that they hadn't met yet. Wouldn't that have been encouraging to you as an individual? Paul made sure that no one was to be left out of this greeting. Even uh, potential trouble causers like Yodia and Syntyche. Greet everyone. Really, there's, there's an interesting absence of personal names here, and we saw those in Romans 16. As Paul goes through this long list of names, but there's none here. It's unusual in Paul's letters, especially to a church that he had such a long-term positive relationship with. He doesn't say, hey, and, and greet Lydia. I remember when she was first saved by that river. And that Philippian jailer, make sure to greet him too. Perhaps Paul doesn't do that because he wants to avoid any appearance of partiality. He's more concerned about the church's unity. Prison hadn't embittered Paul. He wasn't just sitting there selfishly thinking about himself. He hadn't become in-focused and just down the funnel of his own emotions. He was sending his greeting to the church in Philippi. Paul's greeting continues next from Paul to Paul's co-workers. He says in the second half of verse 21, The brethren who are with me greet you. As word spreads that Paul's writing Philippi, his co-workers want in on this greeting too. It includes Timothy, maybe Luke who was also in Rome at least for some of that time. No doubt included, included the brethren in Philippians 1 verse 14. Uh, Paul described them as they had more courage to speak the word of God without fear. They do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So there were other co-workers in Rome. And that's probably the circle of brethren that Paul is talking about. Those who were advancing the gospel in Rome. You can imagine a scene of resistance fighters in France during World War II, during the, during, during the Nazi invasion. They're trying to commute, uh, communicate to, to one another. And for some reason, whenever you imagine, at least I don't know how much time you spend imagining uh, resistance fighters in France during World War II, but when I imagine them, I always imagine them in some kind of, of seedy bar and, and it's all dark lit and there's, it's dusty and they're just kind of sitting there talking about how they're going to fight against the Nazis. And maybe you can imagine them, or they're in the basement, and they're listening to shortwave radio, and they, and they hear the code words. And they know that there's another resistance fighting unit, what group, fighting, but they're fighting in France too. And then they're, they're, there's another one. What encouragement is that? They're not alone in this fight. Just as Paul had called the Philippians to, the brothers in Rome were standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. They were involved in the same battle, the same conflict, and they were sending their greetings. The Philippians were not alone. This greeting extends from Paul greeting each saint in Philippi, to the brethren who are with me greet you, to all the saints greet you greet you next. 
The church in Rome knew and cared about the Philippian church. The church in Philippi wasn't alone. Other like-minded believers were living worthy, knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified, advancing the gospel, persevering in the midst of persecution. I've been blessed to be on a few short-term trips now. I got to go to South Africa a couple times. I got to go to Russia once this past summer. got to go to Malaysia. One of the takeaways that I have every time is being encouraged that we are not alone. Now, my mind knows that we are not alone. I know that there's other good Bible-teaching churches in Orange County. Right? I mean, I know that. But maybe some of you are like me, you just don't rub, rub elbows or shoulders. I don't like to rub elbows or shoulders. You don't rub shoulders with them very often. Saints who go to other good Bible teaching churches, and maybe some of you do, and you're encouraged by that. But for me, when, when you find yourself in another part of the world, and you hear a message that is exalting the same God, and the same word is open up, and the same meaning pops out at it, and you're called to obey in the same way, and you see brothers and sisters in Christ singing the same songs, at least some of the time, but with the same hearts. It's so encouraging. We are not alone. The Philippians would be encouraged by the church in Rome. This day, Marcus preached. Joshua preached. Right? We know many other pastors who preach, some who are preaching right now. Parents will open their Bibles with their kids tonight around the world. See, God's victory is over this world. His kingdom is advancing. His will will be accomplished. We are not alone. When Elijah despaired after that dramatic scene on Mount Carmel, when he called fire out of heaven and God showed that he is the true God and the prophets of Baal were wiped out, Jezebel is seeking his life. And so Elijah is so discouraged at this point, the Lord's encouragement to him included, among other things, you're not alone. In 1 Kings 19.18, the Lord encouraged Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. You don't know them, but there's 7,000 others like you. The saints in Philippi were not alone. The saints in Rome were not alone. The saints in Orange County are not alone. God's victory is over this world. We see that in that God's people are not alone. But there's another evidence here. And that's that God's plan cannot be stopped. And that's the second evidence of the fact that we can be encouraged by God's victory is over this world. God's plan cannot be stopped. Paul ends verse 22 on a triumphant note. He says in 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, the Caesar there is most likely Nero. And his household isn't really referring to his family members or his biological family, but more his civil servants. And whether they were slaves or, or, or freedmen, there are people who worked under Nero, people part of Caesar's household. Now, why did those of Caesar's households especially give greetings? And we really don't know. Perhaps it was because Philippi was a Roman co colony. means that there would have been more interaction between Philippi and Rome. Maybe some of those in Caesar's household had regular business with Christians in Philippi. But I think that the effect here was more than, was more than personal. I mean, remember, Paul is waiting trial before Caesar. Paul ends his letter as he began it with the success of the gospel in Rome. In, in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14, 
He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Being imprisoned is for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. All of these prisoners who I'm chained to have heard the gospel. They all know why I'm here. It is because of Christ. That would have been encouraging to them. Right? God has a plan for Paul being in Rome. And God's plan won't be stopped by Nero. It won't be stopped by any Caesar. Paul comes back to that same idea here at the end. Especially the believers, the saints in Caesar's household are sending you greetings. The gospel had, had infiltrated both the Praetorian Guard and the royal palace. Politicians will never stop the spread of the gospel. Persecution will never stop the spread of the gospel. Death will never stop the spread of the gospel. It is because Christ is building his church. As Matthew 16, 18 says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will have the final victory. The kingdom of heaven continues to expand to this day now, all across the world, even where the gospel is illegal to be preached. God will have his say there. No physical boundary will stop the spread of God's kingdom. No ethnic boundary will stop the spread of God's kingdom. No religious boundary will stop the spread of God's kingdom. No socioeconomic boundary will stop the spread of God's kingdom. Nothing can stop the spread of God's kingdom because God is unstoppable and his kingdom is advancing. And that's why these saints of Philippi could be encouraged. God has people in Caesar's household. The Praetorian Guard know that I am in chains for Christ. The good news is spreading. So, as we've read again and again in Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul was eager to hear that they would stand firm in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents. And that is what we must do too. It's going to take us to be encouraged that God is victorious over this world. We need to be encouraged by God's victory over this world. We also need to be encouraged by, by your separation from the world. Be encouraged by your separation from the world. Be encouraged by God's victory over this world. Be encouraged by your separation from this world. In verse 21 of chapter 4, Paul identifies each, each Philippian believer as a saint in Christ Jesus. In verse 22, Paul calls the believers in Rome saints. Now, in Paul's epistles, this is a very common way to refer to, to believers. It is the second most used. The first is as, as brothers. So when Paul calls them saints here, I don't think he is making a, a specific pointed challenge to them. He's not saying, now, saints, you really need to live like that. I'm going to kind of throw that in here at the end because you've not really been holy. Paul isn't making that point. But there's still a theological truth behind this word saint. It's a point that Paul expected the Philippian believers to understand. It is essential to how Paul saw everyone who was in Christ. And I would probably guess that in many of our either how we were discipled or in, in as we disciple one another, it may not be a word that comes up a lot, right? As we're describing what someone's identity is in Christ, maybe if we're going through a list, we may say saint, but we don't say saint as often as Paul does. And perhaps that's because the impact of the word saint is harder for us to appreciate now than it was then. And I think it is. And some of that is because of the Catholic Church's practice 
of labeling, labeling people as saints for a particularly religious person, someone whom you could pray and ask to pray for you, even though they are dead, someone whose, uh, whose life or, or a prayer answered in their name led to a miracle afterwards. So the Catholic Church calls people saints. So I think that that may cause us at times to not use it as much. But also, saint is just a common use term, right? Oh, they're such a saint. They're such a patient person. They're, they're, they're such a generous person. But in the Greek, saint meant holy ones. Holy ones. Set apart ones. Consecrated ones. Paul is saying, greet every holy one in Christ Jesus. All the holy ones greet you. And don't you think if we use that phrase more, it would stand out to us? The holy ones. To be holy means to be dedicated to the service of God. To be set apart for God. To be consecrated for God's worship. According to Old Testament law, the temple, the priests, the altar sacrifices, even utensils used in the sacrifice were all holy. They were set apart from common use and dedicated to the function of worship. They use utensils at the altar, but you would never take those utensils into your home and use them as a barbecue when you're having it for your friends. They were wholly set apart for temple use. A saint is someone who is both set apart from sin and devoted to God. Set apart from sin and devoted to God. Being a holy one includes being cleansed from sin and being consecrated to God. The end of our independence and the beginning of entrance into his service. Some homes have a guest room. In a sense, that's a holy room, right? It's set apart for guests. It's set apart for a purpose. The kids just don't, don't go in there and make it into their playroom. That room has a specific purpose. In some houses, they have a special plate that is given to whoever in their house has a birthday, right? In a sense, that's a holy plate. It's a set-apart plate. It's consecrated for a purpose. When we set apart money that we're going to give to the church, it's a tithe or, or an offering. It's consecrated, it's set apart for a specific purpose. A saint is someone who is removed from what is common and set apart for a new purpose. Believers become saints through God making us holy, through God sanctifying them. This is what happens when we are first saved. It begins at conversion when God makes us holy in Christ Jesus, when God makes us holy ones in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, describes some of this past tense of us becoming saints. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It's describing something past, test, past tense that happens. At the time of our justification, the time of our washing, we are sanctified. We are made holy ones. Now, no one will ever be holy without Jesus Christ. Paul says that they are saints in Christ Jesus. We are only holy because he makes us so, because he washes us in his own blood. If you are not in Christ, if you have not put all of your hope in him, if you have not given up your lives to be found in him, if you've not repented from your sins, if you're not living for him, you are not a holy one. You are not a saint. And as Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's hope for you in Christ Jesus. If you turn to him, you can be a holy one. But there's the cost that comes with that, right? You're saying, yes, I need to be a holy one. I need to be sanctified. I need to be set apart. But that means I'm leaving sin, and I am completely devoted to God. I am for his use. My life is about his pleasure. I rejoice to be in his presence. 
Sanctification is, 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 in a sense, past tense at our conversion. But it also experientially continues throughout our conversion, through, I mean, throughout our Christian lives. As holy ones seek to live appropriate to their calling. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul tells what the will of God is for our lives. For the will of God, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He's not saying your past tense sanctification, your finished sanctification, but that you live out being a holy one. 2 Corinthians 7.1 has a similar idea. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul's talked about that in this same book, Philippians 3, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He forgets what is behind and strains forward to what is ahead. He looks forward to, he looks in the back and says, Christ has sanctified me. He has made me a holy one. And then he looks forward to, I know what's going to happen when Christ returns. And again, Paul talks about that in Philippians 3, 20 to 21. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The king of the universe is going to sanctify us completely in our, as we're given new bodies. So as Paul looks between what God has done in sanctifying us and looks forward to what's ahead when that sanctification is complete, in this life, he pursues sanctification. So we could talk about our duty as saints, how we are to run from sin and run to righteousness, how we are here for God's purpose, how we are to be consecrated for his use. How we, both individually and corporately as his temple, are to be devoted to his worship. And we could talk a lot about that. But I just want to focus now on the most encouraging aspect of that. That there is wonder involved in this word, saint. What a privilege to be separated from the world. What a privilege to be separated from the world. And that's why you should be encouraged by your separation from this world. We are not what we once were. As Paul says, such were some of you. And you can look back at what you were. And that is not who you are now. Now, by God's grace, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a holy one. And you probably look at yourself and saying, I, there's so much sin in me still. And that's true, right? We are eager for Christ to come and for us to please him 100% all the time. But that does not change the fact that you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That you are a holy one today. You see, that was so much in Paul's mind. And I'm not going to say he throws around the word saint. He never uses it flippantly. But in this greeting at the end, he doesn't say, hey, everyone, let's pause and sit here for a few minutes and think about that word saint. That's good for us to do. Because it's a word full of meaning. In Christ Jesus, God has made us fitting for his presence. Has made us fitting for his use. Can you imagine that? Us sinners? With, with, with this huge list and backlog of the wicked things that we've done. The wicked thoughts that we've had. The wicked words that we've said. To be used for the king. No one would go to, through a, a, a dumpster or to the dump and find a spoon and say, hey, this spoon can be cleaned up enough to be used at the king's table. Let, let, let's take this plastic spoon that's festering in whatever this pile of stuff is, and let's get it really, really clean. I mean, you can imagine using bleach on it and all kinds of chemicals on it, but would you want to put that spoon into your mouth? No one goes to the riverbank and finds a needle and boils it and sterilizes it and uses it in a doctor's office. Who, who, who wants to sign up for that blood sample and say, oh, well, no, it's really clean. No one goes to the morgue to find a dress in an unclaimed pile of clothes that someone died in, cleans it, 
and gets married in it, right? No one does that. For lots of good reasons. What God does in calling us his saints is nothing in comparison to all those things. Because all of that is just, it's just germs. Just things that maybe could kill this body. That is nothing compared to how we have assaulted God's holiness with how many thoughts and how many words, how many things that we've seen. And what does he call you? Holy ones in Christ Jesus. He goes, God goes to his enemies and he cleanses them and he uses them in his service. He makes those who are objects of wrath by nature his holy ones. He makes spiritual prostitutes his priest. He makes spiritual adulterers his son's bride. He gives rebels the robes of his son's own righteousness. He makes sinners into saints. How encouraging is that? Not because of anything that we deserve. If you want to know why you were saved, it's because you were filthy and it made his glory look amazing. Because you are a trophy of his grace. And if you have a problem with that, maybe you don't understand saving faith. Maybe you don't understand the sweetness of forgiveness. Maybe you don't understand the weight of your sin. You haven't been crushed by it enough. This is the good news of being in Christ Jesus. We can rejoice because we are holy ones. We can be encouraged by God's victory over this world. We can be encouraged by our separation from this world. And we can be encouraged by Jesus' grace while we're in this world. We can be encouraged by Jesus' grace while we're in this world. Paul ends, Philippians 4.23, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He finishes his letter by entrusting them to God's grace. It was a common practice both whether in person or in letters, to entrust someone to God's grace in ways and, and some could call almost a, a wish. May God's grace be upon you. Some could call it a prayer. Some could call it an entrusting, a committing someone. Now, most commentators agree that you can't make too much out of Paul's uh, saying, with your spirit here. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And you could wonder, why doesn't Paul just say, be with you? I don't think it's because there's just a little bit of parchment left. We can only speculate. We can meditate. Paul uses that phrase a few times. I can speculate that maybe it's when he wants to emphasize that the grace of Christ would extend throughout this life and into the next. He just wants to, to, to put an exclamation point on that saying. May the grace of Christ be with your spirit. That part of you that, 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 that has been made new in Christ, that is waiting for a new body, that will see that new body, may the grace of Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's coming. What is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Wayne Grudem defines grace as his goodness to those who deserve only punishment. Paul had seen firsthand the grace of Christ on the road to Damascus. He was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church. He says later he would try to get God's people, the believers in Christ, to blaspheme against God. On his way to destroy the church, Christ stopped him and had grace on him. Acts 26, verses 15 to 16, Paul tells that story many times. He says, Paul says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What grace to not just be destroyed right there. But get up and stand on your feet, Jesus said to him. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, 
we see God's grace not only not destroying Paul, not only saving him and making him a holy one, but then giving him a ministry. 100% of Jesus' relationship with you, if you are in Jesus Christ, is of grace. He is nothing but grace toward you. Now, there are so many verses that refer to God's grace, and they're all wonderful. I'm going to limit most of this to talking about where Paul or, or, or others specifically talk about the grace of Christ. It says that it's because of Christ's grace that he was motivated to sacrifice himself for us. His undeserved kindness to sinners, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It's exactly what we've seen in, in uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. God the Son, in his eternal riches, becoming poor out of grace. By the grace of Jesus Christ, you were first called to him. Galatians 1, 6. Paul says that you were called by the grace of Christ. Called by the grace of Christ. And that's talking about the effectual call. The call that, not, not just when you heard the gospel, but when the gospel worked in your heart and you said, I, I have to respond. That's by the grace of Jesus Christ. By the grace of Jesus Christ, it will come no surprise to you, you're saved. Acts 15, 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. In his grace, Jesus Christ gives us spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul talks many times about how his ministry was the work of God's grace. In his grace, Christ gives us gifts. He makes us useful in his kingdom. The grace of Jesus Christ supplies you everything that you need to obey him. His undeserved kindness to you is effectual. It is energizing. It is sustaining. It is supporting. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, You therefore, my son, Paul says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God's grace to you is strengthening grace. Philippians 4.13, Paul says something very similar, that he can do all things through him who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me. The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The grace of Jesus Christ... The grace of his goodwill toward you supplies you, and we talked about this, with all you need in this world. Christ is the true vine. If you are in him, if you are abiding in him, if his words are, are, are in you, you can draw from him as you abide in him all the ability you need today to bear God-pleasing fruit. You are linked into Jesus Christ. Uh, your, your, your straw is deep in Christ. You can, you can slurp everything that you need from him. That grace is freely given to you so that you can obey him. Christ, and that, that, that image is weird, right? A little bit. Granted, I thought about a 7-Eleven, one of those big slurpees there. But Christ says, I'm the bread of life in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus gives an unending supply of sustaining, strengthening, comforting, enabling, emboldening, joy-producing grace. And did you hear that? Emboldening grace. He gives you the grace to make disciples. He gives you the grace to proclaim the gospel. He gives you the grace to forgive. Jesus' grace as we partake in him as the bread of life provides every spiritual calorie you need to obey every command that he's given you for this day. His grace is sufficient for you. Jesus is the light of the world. John 
8.12 says, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of this world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. He is, he is brighter than the sun. He's brighter than the galaxies worth of suns. For he dispels darkness, and he dispels darkness from our lives. So I was thinking about this. We are like solar panels, right? We are like solar panels. And as we, by God's grace, are directing our gaze upon him as he's revealed in his word, as we commune with God, as we partake, and some use the phrase of the means of grace, as we listen to his word being preached, as we spend time in his word, as we enjoy the communion of the saints, as, 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 as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we draw ourselves near to him, it's like directing our solar panel to the sun. And that sun is brilliant, right? He is the light of the world. He gives you all the energy that you need to be pleasing to him. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You have everything that you need in him to obey him. The light of life energizes you to love him, to live as holy saints. The throne of our Lord Jesus Christ is a throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He sympathizes with us. He's the perfect dispenser of grace. He knows our weaknesses. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you need? Then go to him. Go to his throne. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been exalted over all. God has given him the name that is above all names. He is with us. The grace of Christ was sufficient for the problems that the Philippians faced. They were facing opposition for the gospel. Well, Jesus' strengthening grace would enable them to continue to make disciples, to continue faithfully confessing the lordship of Christ, even potentially at the point of death, to continue remaining loyal to him. They were facing problems with disunity. Jesus' empowering grace would enable them to confess their sins against one another, to humble themselves, to work towards harmony in the Lord. They were facing their concern for Paul. Well, Jesus' supporting grace would enable them to continue, even if their beloved pastor was executed and taken home. Jesus' grace would enable them to be content in all those circumstances and to continue to give. Jesus' grace would enable them to know the superiority of knowing him in the midst of false teaching. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for you today in your struggles if you are in him, if you are in Christ. His grace will enable you to be a good steward of the gifts his grace has given you in this time-strapped age. His grace will enable you to pursue unity with every brother and sister here, every one of them. His grace will enable you to do everything without grumbling or complaining. His grace will enable you to live separated from the world and devoted to God in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. His grace will enable you to continue in the flesh, which means fruitful labor for you. Why are you here for fruitful labor? His grace will enable you to rejoice in the Lord, to press on toward the call of God in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul ends this way. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What else is there to say? In Christ Jesus, you have all of your needs. Paul ends this letter, and it was likely in his own hand. He doesn't say, say that here. He ends many of his letters saying it's his own hand. You can imagine these letters scrawled by Paul. Maybe the last they would ever read from him. As he ends, 
Yes, he wants them to, to, to take everything in this book. He would want them to read it again and again. He would want you to read it again and again. To listen to the commands. He also wanted them to be encouraged. So he encouraged them by God's victory over this world. That God's people were not alone. And that no one could stop God's plan. He encouraged them that they'd been separated from this world that they had been devoted to the worship of God. That God had changed them dramatically, made them holy ones. And he encouraged them that in this world, they had Jesus' sustaining, enabling, sufficient grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we rejoice in the encouragement that you've given us today. We do praise you that your kingdom is unstoppable. We praise you, Father, for the part that we play here. As we come from around Orange County to meet here today in Fullerton, we rejoice to know that we are not alone, but that your kingdom is advancing around the world and it will do so until Christ returns. We rejoice in that, Lord. We rejoice that your plan is unstoppable. We are encouraged today that there are elect who will be saved. We, are, are, we want to be used by you, Lord. We want to be set apart for that purpose. We want to be your holy ones. Oh, by your grace, Lord, help us indeed to be holy to be set apart from sin and devoted to your worship. Oh, Father, today we rejoice in what you've done in transforming us, in changing us, in rescuing us, in, 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 in making us into the bride of your Son. Lord, making us, as Peter talks about, kingdom of priests, holy nation. We have no right to be included. Father, you would have been just to pass over all of us. You've been just to destroy us all much long ago. Instead, you graciously bring us into your kingdom work. You enable us through your grace to obey. Oh, Father, your, your commands are good. Lord, they are not burdensome to us. Help us to know more of Christ. To, 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 see, to see your command as Christ did. To find our sufficiency in him. To abide in him. And to drink from him. To find all of our life in him. So that we might become like him. Father, help us to depend upon that grace which flows freely and infinitely from Christ toward us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness uh, to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can be entrusted to the grace of Christ. We trust by your grace that we will be sustained until we see our dear Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.